Welcome back to the 90 Days New Podcast. Today we are looking at the Gospel of John, and really John in general. He writes several books in our New Testament, including the Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the Book of Revelation, uh, all of which we have in front of us. And so we'll be talking about him and his writings more as we progress through this reading plan, which at this point, you're about 75% complete. And so uh, keep trekking along. You are doing wonderful if you've made it this far, and if you're a little behind, uh, it's always possible to catch up by just putting in an extra chapter or two each day. Uh, Or if you've fallen so far behind, I just encourage you to um, just join us where we are and start from here and try to finish strong. Um, But we are looking at a gospel that is a little different than the other gospels that uh, we've read. Uh, We still have Matthew to go through, but uh, Mark and Luke were a part of what we called the synoptic gospels, the gospels that look very similar. They are um, comparable on many levels. A lot of the material is the same, but John stands out as being a little bit different. Uh, As I pointed out in an earlier podcast, if it weren't for John, we wouldn't really know that Jesus had a three-year ministry. And so John gives us a perspective that Jesus had a circular ministry where he would come to Jerusalem and then he would make his way back up to uh, Nazareth and he would spend time in the northern parts of Israel. And then he'd come back down for Passover. And then he'd go back up and then he'd come back down for the Festival of Lights. Uh, and he would continue to, to move around and go to different uh, places. And we have that uh, understanding from John's Gospel. John, we know, was a disciple of Jesus. And so he has eyewitness uh, testimony to provide for us. He was one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, the inner three, John, James, and Peter. John has a position with Jesus that's even more probably intimate than any of the others because John was uh, the one who got to go with Jesus to the cross. He was the only disciple there when Jesus was dying. All the others had kind of scattered under the persecution and the threat that came with the uh, Roman soldiers. And so John alone is the one who stays by Jesus' side. John is referred to in this gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. And uh, we believe that that's probably a statement of humility, a statement of uh, compassion. He felt very close to Jesus. He felt like he was so indebted to Christ, and he felt the love of Christ personally. And so he refers to himself by that term rather than using his own name, uh, just to hide himself from the picture and to emphasize Christ and his love. And uh, so John's gospel uh, is probably written to both Jewish and Gentile people. Uh, He has an audience in both camps, and we see that because he spends a lot of time connecting Jesus back to Old Testament types and themes. Uh, But he also spends time explaining certain elements of Judaism that would really be a waste of paper had the audience been completely Jewish. Uh, So if you look at Matthew's account, he'll say something about the Old Testament, and he won't even take any time to explain that. It's just assumed that you understand what he's talking about. But John, if you look in like chapter 1, uh, verse 41, when he uses the word Messiah, 
he goes on to explain what that word means, which any Jewish person, you wouldn't need to explain that. They know what the Messiah is, um, but he goes on to explain that as the Christ, and you'll find that kind of language throughout the book of John where he says something and then he turns around and explains what he just said because the Gentile audience may not connect the dots to the Old Testament since they weren't as familiar with Old Testament teaching. Uh, one of the major themes or a few major themes we could point out in John's writing is he has a very high Christology, uh, more so than any of the other Gospels. And what I mean by a high Christology is it's as close as we come to getting a description of the Trinity. Um, whereas you could read Mark or you could read Luke and maybe assume that this was a man of God that really had been endowed with power. When you read through John's account, you can barely walk away from it saying this is uh, a, a man at all. This, is, this feels more like a God, like a God in human form, which is exactly what all the Gospels teach. But John, more than any of the others, emphasized that quality of Christ, that he was indeed the God-man. And we see that in the opening statements of John, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on to explain in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among people. So that same Word that was God became flesh, and so we have that idea of the incarnation, which we're celebrating here. It's around the Christmas season. We're getting very close to December 25th. We are in Advent, and we are celebrating the incarnation. That's where God, who is spirit, took on flesh. That's what incarnation means. Incarn, like carnal. So in flesh, the Spirit of God came, and he dwelt in flesh, and he walked among us as a human being, which that's very important to John, and especially when we get into 1 John and uh, some of those writings, uh, he is seeming to be combatant with this idea that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Uh, this was probably a feud with the early Gnosticism that was starting to develop. Gnosticism was a teaching from um, the Greeks that uh, were, was derived from people like Plato and, and other philosophies of the day that said that the spiritual world was superior to the physical world. And so when um, you're talking about a god, they exist in the spiritual world alone. But humankind and the things of this creation, material um, you, know, you know, things, they are physical and therefore they are inferior to the spiritual world. And so when this idea of Jesus being God in the flesh arose, the early uh, church really had a feud with Gnosticism, and some Gnostics would claim to be Christians too, so they were Christian Gnostics. And they had a hard time with this because they wanted to believe that Jesus was God, but then they also wanted to uphold Gnosticism, that flesh and the material of this world is bad or inferior to the spiritual world. And so they either had to say that Jesus was lesser than God the Father, or they had to say that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. It just appeared like he came in the flesh. And so some of John's terminology and the things that he says is combating that idea that Jesus 
only appeared to come in the flesh. And that's why 1 John begins the way that it does. If you go to 1 John, he talks about how they saw Jesus in the flesh, how they touched Jesus in the flesh, how they heard Jesus in the flesh. And so all of the senses were involved in their uh, communication and in their uh, interaction with Jesus, which proved that he was indeed in the flesh. It didn't just appear that way. And yet Jesus is still considered God by the Christian church. And that's why John speaks uh, so much about this high Christology, this fact that he is in the flesh, but he is also equal with the Father. He is the Word, and he is the one who holds all things together. He is the creator of all things, and that's the Jesus that we get from John. So we can be thankful for um, the information John gives us. And there's another theme I'd like to point out, and that's John is depicting Jesus as the intersection of heaven and earth. He's the intersection of heaven and earth. And this gets traced back through the Old Testament as well because we have these places throughout the Old Testament where heaven and earth intersect. It's places like the temple where if you wanted to experience God, obviously you could pray to God wherever you were. Um, God knew everything. He was omnipresent all over the world, but there were certain places where you got a very emphasized and emphatic experience of God unlike anywhere else on the planet. And the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem in the temple was one of those. Uh, the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle that moved around in the wilderness was one of those places. Uh, we see Eden as being one of those places. Um, but then you can look at uh, even smaller versions of this, such as with Jacob. Jacob is in Bethel one night. He goes to sleep, and he has this vision of angels ascending and descending on this ladder or this staircase. And he calls the place Bethel because that means the house of God. Even though it was an earthly location, he was declaring this to be a place where heaven had come down, and it was a place where one could interact with God in a very special and unique way. And so if you were to go back to John chapter 1 and verse 51, you see a reference to that as Jesus is talking about himself, and he's describing, uh, you know, his own nature and who he is, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so he, he makes that clear to Nathaniel that what was true about Bethel in the Old Testament is true about Jesus. The angels are ascending and descending uh, in the same way on him. Why? Because he is the place where heaven and earth intersect. It's no longer Bethel. Bethel was special for a moment or two in history, but then it ceased to be a place where heaven and earth intersect. You could go to Bethel today, and it would be no more significant than being right here in Nebraska. Um, the same could be said of Shiloh, which was once a place of spiritual worship, a place where you could go and you could commune and enter 
act with the God of the universe in a very unique and special way. Uh, the same could be said of the tabernacle, and the same could be said of the temple. Those places once served as the place where heaven and earth intersected, but no longer. That transitioned to Jesus. That's why John writes in chapter 2 that Jesus went and cleansed the temple. And I think we get that picture in John earlier rather than later. I don't think he did this two times, like some have said, uh, because the synoptic gospels have Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of his life. I believe it probably was at the end, but John puts this at the beginning of his book uh, because he doesn't care about a timeline. He's not trying to give you a biography of Jesus' life. He's trying to teach a theological point. So I think he puts the cleansing of the temple early on as he's developing this high Christology to show us that Jesus has become the place of worship. Jesus has become the sacred space that once was true about the temple. And so Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. He, in that same chapter, says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it. And he was talking about his body, because his body is the new temple of God. It's where God lives. God lives inside of the body of Jesus Christ at this point. He's not in the temple in the Holy of Holies anymore. That's why when Jesus dies, the veil is rent, and it, it just exposes the fact that there is no longer anything special about that area. It was very special for a very long time, but no longer. That has transitioned into the person of Jesus Christ. And John elevates and emphasizes that truth. Uh, you get on to chapter 4, and he talks with the woman at the well, and he says it clearly there. He says, a time's coming. Well, you won't worship on Jerusalem, nor will you worship on their mountain, uh, the mountains that they had erected altars and, and pseudo-temples to worship God in as Samaritans because they no longer wanted to come and take part in Jewish worship. We see that happen back in um, the Old Testament when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split. And so they worshiped in Bethel. They, they took Jacob's altar that was once special and was a place where heaven and earth intersected, and they tried to make it significant again, and it wasn't. It had lost its significance. Things had moved and had changed. Uh, and so God's presence had moved from Bethel into the temple. And the Samaritans, they weren't willing to go and worship in the temple. But Jesus says, Bethel's not important anymore. It's not significant. Jerusalem's not significant anymore. A time is coming and is now here when you will worship in spirit and in truth. Because Jesus was saying that his presence and worship of God through him is accessible to all people wherever they are. No longer is a pilgrimage necessary to worship the God of the universe. And um, so this theme continues to develop, and we get to chapter 7. We see him talk about the Holy Spirit that will be put in believers and how they'll have streams of living water running out of them. And um, that this may not come out of your reading just from a surface glance, but those of you that have been attending at Living Water Church and have been hearing what we've been talking about lately in our exegesis of Matthew, you will see that there is a very strong connection between this idea of living water and the temple. In fact, Jesus made that declaration in the temple as he was talking uh, about, about temple worship and about um, how to access the God of the universe. And he is making a statement that that I think is kind of a foretaste of what will be further developed later on, that the people of God are going to end up being a part of the temple construction, the new temple, which is a temple 
of human beings, a temple of believers, not a temple of stone and brick and mortar. And so these are some themes to consider as you go through the book of John. Look at his high Christology. Look at um, how he emphasizes Jesus as the new temple and the sacred space of God. And we'll pick this up next time on 90 Days New.